Welcome to the First Friends Church Podcast. This month, we are celebrating the Christmas season with our sermon series, Open the Door. During these weeks, we will see how God has chosen to open the door and invite us into a relationship with Him, despite our rebellion and despite our sin. God wants a personal relationship with you this Advent season. So Merry Christmas, and now let's go to our Christmas series with Pastor Nathaniel. In a verse that's given rise to one of the most iconic and common portrayals of Jesus in art, Jesus said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Maybe you've seen that painting of Jesus You know, Jesus always looks the same in art, right? He's always a little bit somber, has long hair, he's wearing a robe, he's knocking on the door. God has been knocking on the doors of human hearts since the beginning of time. And one of the two clearest knocks came at the incarnation, the first Christmas. So our theme for this Advent and Christmas season is open the door. Jesus, all he is, all he does, has come to the doors of our hearts and the doors of our church. In each Advent service, we'll be invited to open the door to a specific aspect of who Jesus is, of his identity. And that's our theme. Let's open our doors to him this Christmas. This morning, you heard the the, the reading that Rick did and Rick and Bonnie did, and um, it's about two lost things stories that Jesus told. There are two aspects to the idea of lostness. One is to be lost ourselves. The other is when we lose something of value. Julie and I moved back to Brazil in 2002. Well, rather, I moved back. She moved there for the first time in 2002. And we'd only been there a couple months, and Julie was just cautiously learning to drive there. It was overwhelming. This was before GPS. The city's huge, terrible traffic. It's a mess. And one day, she was driving to the church, which was about 45 minutes from where we lived. She was driving to the church to pick me up because we were going to go from there um, together someplace else. We did have cell phones. That was a blessing. And I, had got, I got a call from Julie, my phone rang and I answered and she said, I think I missed the turn. Now I had taught her one route to the church and one route only. And I said, well, which turn did you miss? And even that one, she wasn't quite sure that she was able to tell me. And I said, where are you? And she said, I don't know. And she began to try to describe some landmarks. Street signs in Brazil are really hard to read. It it makes no sense. They're very small, and the the writing is is very small. So even if you can find a street sign, chances are as you're whizzing by, you're not going to be able to read it. And Julie was terrified. And uh, how? How can I find my way back? What's the hope? And ultimately, she was able to pull over kind of find a street sign, and um, I had to get a key map because I didn't know the city that well either, and the key map for Sao Paulo was about that thick, um, and I was able to find where she was more or less and then talk her back over the course of maybe half an hour um, trying to tell her, okay, next right, no, and anyway, she did eventually make it. But that sense and that feeling of being lost, both on her end, 
which was worse, but also on my end, feeling as though someone that I dearly love is really lost and suffering, how are they going to be found? How are they going to get back to where they need to be? So it can be very frightening to be lost ourselves. It's also disconcerting to lose something that's dear to us. And today I wanna walk us through these two very short stories that Jesus told about lost things, a lost sheep and a lost coin. And the fundamental truth that I want us to discover is that Jesus is the great seeker of lost souls. This morning, we're going to be invited to open the door to the seeker or to the one who seeks. And these two stories share in common three primary words, lost, found, and rejoice. And those three words are going to form our outline this morning. So first we consider the word lost. Two things are lost here, a sheep, one of a flock of a hundred, and a silver coin, probably a denarius, or one day's wage for a laborer. So on the surface, these are things in context, they're things of moderate value. They're not worth less, But at the same time, they're also not worth great sacrifices of time and energy in order to find. And Luke lays out a context for these stories by highlighting two different groups. So on the one hand, we have the tax collectors and sinners. And for those of you who are following along, this is in Luke chapter 15, by the way, verses 1 through 10. So two different groups, the tax collectors and sinners on the one hand, and on the other, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. On one side, the down and outers, the broken, the outcasts of Jewish society. On the other, the most respected, most religious, most outwardly righteous people of the day. But I want you to notice something. Where are the sinners and what are they doing? The sinners, the outcasts, are gathering around Jesus, and the text says specifically, to hear him. While the holy ones, in quotes, are standing apart because they don't want to be contaminated by the sinful ones. But in avoiding the sinful ones, by avoiding the outcasts, who else are they avoiding? They're avoiding Jesus. In addition, they're not listening to him, right? The sinners are gathering around in order to hear Jesus. What are the Pharisees and teachers of the law doing? They are muttering among themselves against Jesus. So this context begs the question, of these two groups, which one is actually lost? The second word shared in these two accounts is the word found. Two emphases here with that word. The first of these is the attention that Luke gives, well, Jesus gives, to the effort expended by the one searching for the lost. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. So it's not a a particular amount of time that's set aside for the search, it's until the sheep is found. He doesn't stop. 
The woman lights a lamp, and remember, not that this is great effort, but it's not just the flipping of a light switch as it would be today. It's filling the lamp with oil, trimming the wick, lighting it, making a flame. And then she sweeps and searches carefully till when? Again, till she finds it. So again, just remember, in the culture of the day, the face value of these items was not that great. A sheep had value, but the shepherd had an additional 99. He had many to spare. Was it worth the effort? Was it potentially worth leaving the other 99 to find the one? A day's wage for a laborer was not an insignificant amount of money, but this woman did have nine others. The effort that the seeker expends in each case reveals how deeply valued and cherished these lost things are to the shepherd and the woman, regardless of how others might view them. So regardless of the value that the world might assign to these items, in the eyes of the one to whom they belonged, in the eyes of the seeker, the woman and the shepherd, they are of inestimable value and they are worth the effort and the inconvenience of the search. So that's the first emphasis here as it relates to the word found, the effort expended by those searching. The second emphasis is on the identity of the seeker. Now, I realize that most of you have figured this out by now, but Jesus is talking about himself. He is the one who seeks lost souls who imbues them with value far beyond what they might have on their own. And his love for the lost compels him to pursue and search and come after each one who is far from him. Lest you think I'm making this up, Jesus says of himself, it's really his mission statement. In Luke 19.10, it's a Zacchaeus story. You're familiar with it, most of you. This is where Jesus actually defines his mission. For the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the lengths to which he has gone to find us, to find lost souls, it's beyond words. The incarnation, first of all. The incredible humbling of God himself. Humbling himself to be born as part of his creation in the helpless body of a human baby. And restricting himself to that body, restricting himself to time to the time necessary for that baby to grow into adulthood, that God would find the lost, and that's all of us, worth it. To do that is truly beyond expression. Now, I said that that was one of the two greatest knocks. It's really one great, incredible knock on the door. It's the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection together. 
Because if the, if the incarnation itself, which we celebrate and remember at Christmas time, if that were not enough, then there is the cross where Jesus died so that you, me, and others may be found by him. And listen, the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection, they're one story. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. I've shared that with you before. I like the movies, I love the books. There is a difference. Um, but to focus exclusively on either the incarnation or the cross or the resurrection would be to read one of that trilogy and never the others. Thank you, Jesus, for the lengths to which you have gone to find us. Thirdly, we see the word rejoice repeated in these accounts. This is the result of the finding. It's a major celebration, a great rejoicing. I lost a lot of things when I was a kid. It was an issue, not to me, but to my parents. And it came to the point where if I lost particular items, there would be a consequence to pay, sometimes a literal paying money, what little I had, or a stopping of allowance. It was usually payment in the form of some sort of discipline, loss of privilege, punishment, grind, grounding, some, grinding, grounding, something like that. But, and I remember one day in particular, I had lost my lunchbox. This was a repeated occurrence, it wasn't anything new. But I had gone home without it at the end of the day, and my parents, I don't remember what the threat was. Actually, my parents never really threatened. A threat implies that it wouldn't be carried out. It was always carried out. So I had been told, if you don't bring your lunchbox home today, you'll be grounded you know, until adulthood. I don't remember exactly, but something like that. And when school was over, I was desperately searching for this lunchbox. I went everywhere I had been the day before. It was not by the basketball courts. It was not in the lunchroom. It was not in any of the classrooms that I had been in the day before. It was nowhere, and I was panicking. And I sat down in this bench kind of in the middle of campus. I'm pretty sure that I prayed. I'm not positive. But I was so desperate that I said, God, where is it? And this is, this is true. I was sitting this bench. I looked up down the hill at our campus, and straight ahead was the girls' bathroom. The door was open, and propping the door open was my lunchbox. And I'm sure that my level of rejoicing did not compare to the rejoicing in heaven with one sinner that repents, but it was close. <laughs> I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. And how did he, by the way, I, I did not go in the girl's bathroom. I had not taken it in there. I had not propped the door and it was just sitting there right in front of me. I had no idea to this day how it got there. I rejoiced. And the funny thing is I wanted to find someone to tell about it but then I thought maybe I better not. <laughs> but think about this, what would a party with angels be like? You can say that again, someone who ever said, oh hallelujah over there, yeah. What, that's, 
I don't think there are actually words in our language, in any human language, to describe what a heavenly party must be like. But Jesus tries to convey it to us. The reaction in heaven over just one sinner who repents and is found. And what we're meant to recognize is that no one fits the description who does not need to repent. Because that's what Jesus says. He said that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a hundred who do not need to repent. And that is intentionally ironic because everyone is lost. The Pharisees as much as the tax collectors. And in terms that are very clear, Jesus tells the Pharisees, in essence, that their self-righteousness gives no joy to God and causes no rejoicing in heaven. Me being good does not create a heavenly party. My repentance does. The heart of God is for the lost who recognize their lostness. While those who rely on their own ability to find themselves will remain lost and far from him. So what does it look like to open the door to the one who is seeking us. This account, it shows us that there are two kinds of lost people. Those who realize they're lost and those who don't. They're all lost. The tax collectors and sinners recognize their own brokenness. They knew they were hated and ostracized by polite society. And because of that, they were so intrigued by this man, Jesus, who was becoming more and more famous, and yet he would be with them. And he didn't push them away. And he didn't reject them. They were with Jesus and were hearing him. On the other hand, we have the Pharisees, maybe more like us and more like me than we would like to admit. I didn't read it this morning, but the next story is the story of the two sons, right? We often call it the prodigal son, but it's the story of the two sons. And in that story, we have that same setup where we have the self-righteous older brother who, even though he has been, in quotes, good all his life, is far from the heart of the father, whereas the profligate son, the one who has gone and squandered everything, he's the one who comes back and is inside the house at the party again with the father. So a question to, to many of us, I think, who are church people is, do we recognize our lostness? Or maybe a better way to put it, do we recognize and remember our former lostness? And do we remember that the fact that we were found had nothing to do with our effort and our goodness? The Pharisees are... are Self-righteous, they trust their own effort, their own goodness, the outer signs 
And because they're good at putting on the facade, they look down on and despise the others. And maybe things that we might use as a facade, maybe, as I said last week, it's going to church every week. Please don't stop doing that. But, like, but that, that we use that, we think that is the same as being found by the seeker. We think that being good, right, you know, clean living is the same as being found by the seeker. But it's not. Because all of those things are things that we try to do out of our own effort, our own hard work, our own focus. And it's actually, in the case of the Pharisees, it's actually their very self-righteousness that keeps them away from Jesus. Think about that. That's what keeps them away. Because like, I'm, I'm too good to be with those people. I, I don't eat with them. I don't interact with them. I'm not gonna get sullied by, by being close to those people. If you see yourself reflected in either of these groups, the invitation is the same. To open the door, well, first I should say to recognize our lostness, and secondly, to open the door to the one who is seeking us. Open the door to Jesus. If you've never before come to him, never before repented of sin and, and all the things that you have done that go directly against who God is and what he has aligned for his people and for this world, then there's always the first time. And for others of us that maybe have drifted into that life of the Pharisee, where we had that initial encounter, where we did surrender and we did repent, and we said, yes, Jesus, I want you to take over my life. Yes, I believe you are the Son of God. Yes, I believe you were born in the body of a human baby. Yes, I believe you died on the cross in my place, and I received that. We've had that initial encounter, but over the course of time, we've drifted back into, I can be pretty good on my own. And that's how I want to portray myself to everybody else. I'm pretty good. And that's enough. We might need to come open the door again to the seeker because we're lost. Now, there's another group that I want to address, and, and that is those of us who have that initial, you know, we have opened the door to the seeker, we've recognized our sin, we've repented, we've said yes to Jesus, and we've said to him, come in and transform me. But maybe there's something we didn't realize when we opened that door. Who's with the seeker in this account? Who's with Jesus? The lost. Who's listening to Jesus? sinners. Jesus, as these parables open, is with the broken, not with the ones who think they're okay. In fact, we see Jesus enacting his mission as the account opens. He's acting it out. He's living it. He is seeking and saving the lost. He's doing it. And that, that fact, his activity is what is leaving the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law absolutely incensed. And Jesus starts the story by putting each of us, he puts every single listener, every single reader of this text in the role of the seeker, doesn't he? 
He actually doesn't put us in the role of the lost. He puts us in the role of the seeker. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. If we have truly opened the door to the seeker, then we have also opened the door to the heart of the seeker for the lost. So we're invited to join him in the search seeking other lost souls, guiding them to Jesus. We can't love Jesus, we can't belong to Jesus, we can't be with him and not be where he is, doing what he is doing. And if his stated mission is to seek and save the lost, then we have to be with him in that mission. Will we join him or will we stand self-righteously apart, criticizing the lost, looking down on them, denigrating them, but doing nothing to join him in following them? And, And just to be clear, We don't find the lost for ourselves. We join Jesus because we need to lead them to to him. Just as I had to go to the key map of the city in order to, to bring help to Julie, I had to go to a higher power, greater knowledge. I couldn't just do that out of myself. And finally, what a blessing that Jesus is the seeker and that he does come after us. And you know, Jesus doesn't lose things like we lose things. It's not like the loss he's talking about is like a lunchbox that some junior high kid forgot at school. He's not walking along, oh my goodness, I just lost a soul. Where did they go? When did I last have it? Human souls are lost because human souls have run away, like sheep, like sheep. We've gone our own way. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. God's not responsible for our lostness, but he still seeks after us, calls us, welcomes us back to him. He doesn't abandon us in our lostness. He doesn't tell us to fix it ourselves. I've used that example before, you know, the little baby who messes their diaper and the dad or the mom says, you made the mess, you can clean it up. The father, the mother, in tenderness, does for the baby what the baby cannot do for itself. Jesus searches, finds, offers his restoration. And according to this first story, where does the shepherd take the sheep? Home. He takes the lost sheep to his home. Home, true home, the home for which every human soul longs is to be with Jesus. It's not as much a place as a question of with whom we are. We continue to worship the seeker. We are invited to open the the doors of our hearts to him. You know your condition. You know your situation. Maybe it's a matter of opening the door to the lost because that's where the heart of the seeker is. But whatever it may be, however the Lord's speaking to you, whatever work the Holy Spirit's doing, don't resist it. Even quietly, softly, in your mind, or even out loud, just say, Lord Jesus, I open the door of my heart to you, the great seeker of souls. And as we worship you, you can come to the altars if you would like. Come to this side, someone will join you and pray for you there. If you come to this side, no one will disturb you. You can pray and worship alone. Also feel free to fill in this space here at the front if you just want to worship and sing closer to the stage, shoulder to shoulder with sisters and brothers. Let's stand and let's worship the one who is the seeker of souls.
Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week!